Good morning, guys, again. So good to see, see you, be with all of you. Uh, you know, someone mentioned this morning, uh, will I finish uh, by kickoff? And um, then I, uh, I kick off like four or five. I can't promise, uh, but I'll do my best. Uh, so, you know, definitely not by the pregame. Uh, but uh, I saw the average ticket price for the Super Bowl. The average ticket price is eighty six hundred dollars. So I, I don't. I was a little shocked. I got to admit, uh, I, I'm not shopping for tickets. Uh, haven't ever actually shopped for tickets. So, but you know, I mean, uh, uh, boy, I'm out of touch. Eighty six hundred dollars average average ticket price and i saw the celebrities this week were complaining too because uh the price of a suite has oh, gone through the roof and i feel bad for them uh all of the millionaires that can't afford a suite this year at the super bowl so uh i'm glad to be here with you i'm glad to see so many uh, of you here just uh excited to get into the word of god um that is truly the only thing that I'm anticipating now and with great anticipation, Acts chapter 24. Let's uh, open our Bibles this morning. Let's get into it. And we've seen uh, how our advantages and disadvantages can be used uh, by God as we serve Him. And now we we continue to follow the Apostle Paul uh, in Roman custody and facing further Jewish accusations, and this morning we're going to see Paul reasoning with Felix, the the Roman governor who was based in Caesarea there, and we discover that we're going to have difficult times in, in our lives, each and every one of us, and you may look around at people and you may think, oh, surely, you know, I have this, they're probably immune to this. Uh, None of us is going to be immune, even the Apostle Paul. We're going to have difficult times in our lives, but the question is, are we going to allow the Lord to turn these into opportunities to share? Because that's what Paul does. When you look at Paul, you're, you're blown away. How could this guy, in the midst of all that, how is he not just complaining a little bit? How could... How could he have that mindset uh, while he was going through this uh, to to share and to be faithful? Well, we're going to answer that question here this morning. We're going to get into how the Jews accuse Paul and then Paul uh, responds. And then, unfortunately, we'll see how uh, Felix just procrastinates. So let's get into it. Chapter 24. We'll look at the whole chapter here this morning um, and say, now, oh, we know you weren't lying by, about kickoff. Uh, we'll, we'll get through it. Uh, and uh, I'm excited about it, actually. There's some, some fascinating sections here. But verse 1, now after five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor uh, against Paul. So they travel 65 miles, roughly, to accuse Paul. You know, back nowadays, you can do that as a day trip uh, if you want, if the if you time it right with the traffic. But but uh, but back then, this trip probably about a week to go down there and to have this proceeding uh, with Felix against Paul and and to go back. It was uh, quite an ordeal. And this shows how opposed to the gospel these people were. 
It wasn't like just, yeah, if he's around and it's convenient and we can work against him and say some bad things about him and maybe stir a few people up and if some people try to kill him and they make a pact that they're not going to eat or anything until they kill him, well, great, that's fine, but we're not going to lift a finger. No, these people, they would take a week, they would travel on foot, you know, 130 miles round trip uh, to, to just to, to, and not even Paul, but uh, but the gospel and Jesus Christ. That's how opposed they were uh, to the gospels. Now, at this point, it's probably just the Sadducees, certainly Ananias, who's mentioned, and, and the priesthood were uh, primarily of that class uh, or that uh, division of people, the Sadducees. We've, we've talked about them before. Obviously, the, you, you had the Pharisees. They were... They were the, the conservatives, oftentimes uh, uh, rabbis and scribes coming from that sect uh, of the Pharisees within Judaism. I think today the modern equivalent of the Pharisees, or you might say the descendants of the Pharisees, would be the uh, ultra-Orthodox or maybe the Orthodox. And, and the Sadducees, um, they have their descendants these days as well. Uh, I would say that perhaps... Most of the other Jewish people that you meet are like the Sadducees. And religion is about tradition. It's about spirituality. Um, But there is no concept or belief. You might be shocked to know that a lot of Jewish people, particularly here in the United States, uh, they have no belief. They're just like the Sadducees. They don't believe in an afterlife. They don't believe in in, in resurrection or, uh, or, you know, angelic beings and a spiritual realm this these were the priests in, in that day and so it gives you a little bit of a sense of what their priorities and what religion uh at least in their mindset uh was all about and so it's likely the sadducees came because remember that when paul was brought before the council in acts chapter 23 uh there in verse 9 He saw that the proceeding was going nowhere with the Sanhedrin, and he knew that that was a divided body of primarily Sadducees and Pharisees. And so he said that, I'm here because of the resurrection, right? Paul used a very interesting tactic at that particular point. And in verse 9 of chapter 23, it says that there arose a loud outcry. And the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, we find no evil in this man. But if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. It's really interesting language there. Uh, The Pharisees say, you know, oh, he's talking about the resurrection. We believe, oh, that's right, you don't believe in it. But if a spirit or an angel has spoken, oh, that's right, you don't believe in that either. Uh, You know, so there was this division between the the scribes and the Pharisees. and, And it's doubtful that the Pharisees would have made this journey to accuse Paul because for the most part, in the immediate aftermath of that proceeding, they didn't really have too much issue uh, with Paul. So the Sadducees come down, they're, they're still uh, stirred up. They even hired a Roman lawyer, uh, Tertullus, to, to uh, help them before the governor. So they come down and they, you know, they hire, a, uh, it, it says here that, that uh, a certain orator, but his purpose was to, to really serve as, uh, to not only speak on their behalf, uh, but to speak legally on their behalf. And so verse 2, uh, when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation, 
saying, seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. Uh, you know, I, I don't... I don't imagine Felix was a dumb individual. Uh, if you read historical accounts about him, uh, he didn't get where he was by not being very shrewd. Uh, if I were him, I would have just been irritated by this. But you see this a lot uh, in the Bible, uh, kind of beginning with flattery and uh, things like that. And so uh, they say, We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be too tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. I, I think they might have maybe uh, been a little cheap on the order. Uh, they probably could have hired somebody a little bit better. Uh, but, you know, maybe they found him on Craigslist. Uh, but anyway, he, he's kind of schmoozy and cheesy, and he, but he starts. He says, we have found, he gets into his accusations, verse 5, we have found this man a plague a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But, but the commander, Lysias, came uh, and with great violence took him out of our hands. So the charges that they make against Paul are fourfold. First of all, he's a disease. He's a plague. You, you have a real problem on your hands and a real opportunity to rid the world of this plague. And he is a creator of dissension around the world. Everywhere he goes, he's stirring people up and causing dissension in, you know, in, in, in your empire. And so not as he, only is he a disease and a plague, uh, but he's a problem to society and, and you need to deal with him. And the third accusation is, is that he leads a sect in, in and that word is not used in a positive context. He's, he's got this fringe group. Today we might say he's a cult leader. You know, that, and, and people, oh, you know. Uh, and, and because obviously there are true cult leaders and there is true history uh, with that concept. And so uh, there was back in that day as well. And so he's painting this negative picture of him as a, as a divider, not just socially, but also religiously and, and, and even dangerous. And then they say he tried to profane the temple. And, you know, one thing that is, uh, was even recognized in that time was that you didn't want to see problems happen in the temple. If you were a Roman, you didn't want problems in the temple. You didn't, really, you didn't particularly care if the temple was profaned as long as, you know, there wasn't a problem in the temple. That, that's what you cared about. Still the same thing today, you know. And the Romans built the Antonia Fortress right there on the corner of the Temple Mount in order to overlook, to watch the, what was going on there. And the moment there was a riot like there was when Paul was in the temple, to go in and to immediately... Uh, put down whatever that disorder was at that particular point in time. Because they had learned the hard way of all of the problems that could come if you don't immediately deal with problems in the temple. It's the same way today. And, you know, you go up on the temple mount at, you know, you, you probably don't realize this. It comes as a shock to most people. But the temple mount is not controlled by the Jews. The Temple Mount is 
controlled actually by the Jordanians. Uh, And they decide for the most part who and when they can go on the Temple Mount. And if you're a Muslim, you can go up on the Temple Mount and you can play soccer and you can do whatever you want pretty much whenever you want. But you and I or any Jewish person who wants to go up there, there are limitations, extreme limitations, sometimes entire cancellations. You know, just, nope, you you don't get to come today. And, or, you know, you get this hour to come up up, up here. And then you go up there and you see all of this stuff going on and, and, and the complete disregard uh, in some cases, and you're kind of shocked. It's a giant game of keep away. That's what you discover about the Temple Mount. It's this great big game of keep away. For those who it's important to, those who it's not particularly important to, are doing their best to keep them away, to keep them from being able to pray and to keep them from being able to worship there. But you go up there and and the reason this goes on from a political standpoint is is there's this attempt, misguided or what, you you can make your own determination, but to try and keep the peace because this is you get the sense that this is the epicenter. That when you arrive at this place, it is the epicenter of the, uh, you know, of, of the universe spiritually in a way. And that one way or the other, that things could, you know, that that balance can be very easily upset. And it is indeed that. And it was during the time of the Romans. It is today. You know, you, you walk up the ramp to the Temple Mount and you see the riot shields stacked up. You go through the metal detectors. You know, you, you're followed. You know, I don't know when the last time I wasn't followed on the Temple Mount to make sure that I wasn't praying, that, that I didn't say something, can't bring a Bible, anything like that up there. You know, it's, it's very strict. It's very guarded. And it was that way in that day, too, for a reason. It was a tense, a tense, tense place. And so the accusation is, you know, he tried, to perf- he tried to go in and upset that balance that you all are working so hard to maintain. And he's a really dangerous guy. You don't want to let him just come back there. Because who knows what will happen. And then they try to make an accusation against Tribune Lysias as well. Um, but notice what they don't mention. They don't mention the 40 conspirators who had, conspirators who had taken a vow to kill Paul. They, they, they leave that out. Uh, probably wise. And, and uh, I wonder, by the way, if they had decided to eat yet. <laughs> Remember they said they wouldn't eat or drink anything until, you know, Paul was dead. I wonder if they had uh, given up on that. Fine, you know. Um, and, but uh, verse 8. So they said that uh, Lysias took him away from us. We would have dealt with him ourselves, but he, he didn't give us that privilege. Uh, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. So they make their accusation, and now Paul is going to respond. And Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. In contrast to Tertullus, I love the way that uh, Paul begins. He says, 
let me paraphrase. Uh, I don't think this is how the message Bible would put it, but maybe. Uh, Paul says this. He says, uh, I'm happy to answer before you because I, I know you know what's up. That's what he's saying. You've been a judge of this nation for many years. You know how this works. You know these people. You, you know how they how they work. So he establishes a little bit of context. Felix had, in fact, been in that position for six years. He had been in the region for between 10 and 13 years. So he was a Roman, yes, but he understood um, the Jewish aristocracy, the priesthood, uh, and their system from a political standpoint very well. Religiously, that was a different matter, but he didn't concern himself so much with that. Verse 11, it says, He says, because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to worship. (laughs) So Paul is just using sheer logic. You've been around. You know how this works. And you you know that it was only 12 days ago that I even got to Jerusalem. I've been in custody most of that time. And then I was brought down here. So he's kind of saying, you mean to tell me that I caused all of these problems just in a matter of days. He barely had time to cause the, disi- the, the division um, that they were accusing him of. And so his first point is, look, how could he have had time to plague Jerusalem as they charged? He was there to worship, not to cause division. Verse 12, and they found, uh, they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone, nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. So the second thing he says is that, uh, you know, when he was in the temple, when he was in the, the synagogues, when he was in the city, that he incited no one, and they had no evidence that he had done so there or anywhere else. So... He really says, all you really have here are accusations. They've presented no evidence, right? If the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. <laughs> you probably remember where you were, you know, back in the OJ uh, trial days. I remember where I was. I, I, I couldn't believe it when the verdict, you know, for that was, was read. Some of you were, you know... Uh, Maybe at work, some of you were maybe just kids. Maybe some of you weren't even born. Uh, a lot of you weren't even born yet. But, uh, you know, uh, Paul is, is essentially saying, hey, there's no evidence. They, they've just made accusations. They haven't given you any evidence. Now he says this, verse 14. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I love that they called um, Christianity in the early days was called the way. Just such a good description. Jesus said, of course, I am the way, the truth, the life. And so Christianity was, was the way. The way to God. The way to salvation, the way to redemption and reconciliation and forgiveness of sin. And, and so the name stuck. He says, according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets. So he says, I, I'm not part of some cult, you know. 
I'm part of Judaism. They, they call it a cult. They call it a sect. But, you know, we must not forget that. That oftentimes we talk about the great religions of the world, right? People talk about Judaism. They talk about Christianity. They talk about uh, Islam, um, you know, the major religions of the world. But, but really, Christianity is just, uh, it's, a, it's a, in a positive sense, a sect of Judaism, if you will. It's, it's the fulfillment. It is, you might say, true Judaism in a way, um, because it is the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. It is a fulfillment of his word in the law and in the prophets. And so, so Paul says, I'm not, I'm not, it's not like I'm not a Jew. He says, I, I'm, I'm, ju- I'm a Jew. I just, I believe this and this and this as well. And, and, you know, if there were time, he would be able to explain why. So it's really interesting to me um, the way that he, he, and he always kind of presented it that way. You know, a lot of people try to say, well, Paul, you know, he, th- that Paul somehow, you know, turned his back on Judaism or, or, or other things. And, and um, th- those ideas, I'm seeing a resurgence of some of these things again today. It's, it, it's interesting to me. But, uh, but anyway, he says, I have hope. Verse 15, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept some of them, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. So they, they called him a ringleader of a divergent sect, but he was someone who worshipped the God of his fathers according to the word of God. In verse 16, he says, this being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. So if Felix wasn't particularly religious and he wasn't what he did need to know is is that whatever disagreements there may have been concerning these things that the person before him was someone who always worked to have a conscience that was without offense toward God and men if there were mistakes that were made, if there were disagreements, they were nothing more than that. They certainly weren't plagues and divisions and, and uh, dissension and working against the government or, any, or even anyone. And so I, I love that Paul talks about striving to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. By far the greatest people throughout history have been those who have labored to always maintain a clear conscience before God and men. In my experience, the greatest individuals have not been perfect, but they have always had that desire to have a good conscience before God and before men. And it isn't always the easiest way to live but it is the best way to live your life. It is the right way, and Paul could say that. Paul could say that without reservation. My, if you want to know how I expend my effort in my life, what my decision-making process is, 
that my conscience might be clear before God and before other people. And if you can say that at the end of the day, you've, chances are you're going to have made more, if not completely right decisions in relationship to both God and men. You have two planes of relationships. You have a vertical relationship with God and you have a horizontal relationship with everyone else. And if you strive to have your conscience clear, to know that I endeavored to do my best in relationship to God, in honesty and in purity and in truth and in faithfulness before God, and the same before others, at the end of the day, that's all you can do. If you make mistakes, you acknowledge those mistakes. You apologize, you ask for forgiveness, whether it's before God, whether it's before others, and you move forward continuing to strive and live with a good conscience. The problem comes in when people don't care, when people ignore their conscience. They don't live faithfully before God. They don't live in a way that is honorable toward their fellow men. And unfortunately, much of what you see in society today is the result of that. Is a result of people and a world that doesn't strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Verse 17. Now after many years I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation. In the midst of which... Some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with tumult. So, to the final charge of attempting to profane the temple, he says, uh, I was in Jerusalem actually delivering a charitable gift. You're going to laugh, Felix, but uh, I, I was here delivering, you know, one of those big checks to charity. That's what he, he was bringing the money that he had collected from primarily Gentile churches throughout the empire back to Jerusalem for those that were struggling in Jerusalem. There's some disagreement, or I don't know if it's disagreement as much as uh, maybe different ideas as to why and who was exactly struggling. It was, uh, it, it seems to be that there might have been some famine, uh, so maybe the struggling was a little more universal. Uh, some suggest that the struggling was Christians who were struggling as a result of becoming believers and ostracism from the rest of the Jewish community. Either way, Paul says, I came bringing help. I came bringing alms. I came uh, bringing offering. And when I was in the temple, uh, I didn't stir anybody up. I didn't stir anybody up around the world. I didn't stir anybody up uh, in the temple. I came into the temple purified ceremonially and fulfilling a vow. And so verse 19, he says, They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. He's talking about the people who, when he was in the temple, seized him in the temple, started beating him, uh, and would have killed him if the Romans didn't intervene. He's saying if they had any legitimate accusations against him, they should actually be the ones here, uh, not the priests and their lawyer, but those people should be here to support their allegations. Verse 20, he says, or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before their council. He says, and yet, 
And yes, I've been before these people before. And what was the conclusion of that proceeding? What wrongdoing did they find me guilty of? Verse 21. He says, unless it is for this one statement, which I cried out standing among them, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. So none of this was true. And uh, the things that Paul was being accused of, they weren't true. And the things that he actually had done weren't criminal and were the fulfillment of their very scriptures, those who were there accusing him. So verse 22, how does Felix handle this? Verse 22, when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. Felix had a dilemma. He knew that uh, Paul wasn't guilty of anything. He, as I said, he wasn't um, inexperienced or ignorant. He hadn't done anything criminal. He hadn't even done anything ethical. In fact, he probably, Felix could conclude, hadn't even done anything against uh, Judaism. Yet if he released him, the Jews would be upset. It's uh, startling. I don't know if startling is the word. It, it, it's surprising, I think. When you look in the scriptures, that even though Israel was occupied by and controlled by Rome, how much power they still managed to uh, maintain. It's, it's quite impressive, uh, strictly from that standpoint. And so these people, whether it was Pilate uh, in the time of Christ, uh, or whether it was uh, Felix, they, part of them always felt pressure uh, to cater on some level, to please on some level, these people that they were also responsible for ruling. And he didn't want them to be upset. So he dragged his feet. He indicated, well, I need to hear from Tribune Lysias further. There's no evidence that he actually called for him. So he just kind of uh, punts. Says, oh, you know, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll deal with this. We'll deal with this later. And so he commanded the centurion to keep Paul, to let him have liberty, told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide uh, for vi- uh to, to provide for or visit him. So he's kept in custody. He's, he's given quite uh, generous privileges, it would seem. Verse 24. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. So Felix, as I said, we know a little bit about Felix from history. He was a Greek slave uh, who descended, but he had royal roots. So he was a, a, a Greek slave with, um, with a little bit of pedigree. And so uh, he was freed with his brother from slavery under the reign of, of Claudius. And he rose to power. As I said, he wasn't an ignorant man. He rose to power through cunning. And his rule historically was marked uh, by dishonesty uh, and treachery. And uh, Drusilla who was his wife, uh, she's even more fascinating. Uh, Drusilla was the great-granddaughter of Herod the Great. 
and she was the daughter of Herod Agrippa I, who uh, was one of the first persecutors of the church. So her father, in Acts chapter 12, verse Uh, verses 1 and 2, it says that about that time Herod, that was Herod Agrippa I, the father of Drusilla, that time Herod the king, Acts chapter 12, verse 1, stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. And then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. So he martyrs James, uh, and and he's harassing the church. and, And this is, you know, this is what she grew up under. This was, this was her father, and, and as bad as that may sound, uh, her, her great-grandfather, Herod the Great, was even worse. Slaughtered all of the children in and around the area of Bethlehem, trying to catch the Messiah, the uh, baby uh, Christ in in his uh, massacre and wipe him out. Uh, all of the other stories uh, about Herod, you know, the sayings, uh, killing his children for fear that they, uh, many of his children for fear that they were uh, conspiring to take the throne. There developed a saying in those days, it's better to be Herod's pig than Herod's child. And because, you know, it's safer. And and, uh, so this is the family. Drusilla's great uncle was Herod Antipas. He was most famous for killing John the Baptist. And he had taken as wife her aunt from another one of her uncles. This family, you know, Thanksgiving had to be really interesting. They got around, you know, it was probably the, I think the, the, the menu was probably a little different. Uh, you know, it wasn't mashed potatoes, maybe the hummus or something, but, uh, uh, the falafel, but, but, uh, you know, they never lacked probably anything or anyone to talk about. Her cousin Salome was the one who danced provocatively for her uncle, which got John the Baptist killed in the first place. And she was a Jew, it says really interestingly. Obviously, Felix was not a Jew. She was reportedly very beautiful. She was actually married uh, previously to a King Aziz of Emesa, uh, which was, uh, um, it was in the area, it was in Syria. Emesa is called uh, Homs uh, today, and it's actually, uh, it was in ancient Syria. It's actually part of Lebanon uh, today. And uh, so she was married uh, to, to uh, the king of Emesa. He converted to Judaism. She was married to him uh, in an alliance. Uh, but that didn't last because when she met Felix, who was also married at the time, he had a friend who was a sorcerer named Simon from, uh, Josephus tells us, from the island of Cyprus. And so he got Simon to be his matchmaker. I don't know, cast a spell maybe on her. I'm not really sure, you know, how that worked. They didn't have apps in those days. So, you know, he couldn't swipe right or left or, I don't know, up, down. I'm not sure how that works. But he, he got Simon to help convince her to leave her husband and marry him. <laughs> These are the people that God called Paul to minister to. And... uh we have no record of them responding to the gospel. Uh, 
but the Lord used Paul in this situation. Paul is the right guy for the job. And, you know, uh, as we live our lives for the Lord, he's going to give us opportunities to answer concerning the faith. And those opportunities may come out of great personal cost uh, or hardship to ourselves. In 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter writes this, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. He says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be, he quotes from Isaiah here actually, and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. That's in the 8th chapter of Isaiah. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and in fear. And, and what, did, what did Paul say? He said, uh, it's for hope. That I have hope. And he was testifying of that hope that he had. And in Colossians chapter 4, there in uh, verse 2, Paul writing, he asked for prayer, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Colossians 4 verse 3, meanwhile, praying for us, also for us, that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains. So he says, hey, I'm in chains, but pray that in the midst of my chains, there would still be an open door that I make make manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Paul was someone who knew, you would say, how to take lemons and make lemonade if lemonade is the gospel. He knew how to take trial and turn it into opportunity or better, how to allow the Lord to take his trial and turn them into open doors. And that's exactly what he does here. Who's going to reach these people? Who are they going to listen to? Probably not many people. But the Lord has a way of moving Paul in there and and they have to listen whether or not they've got to respond well that's a, a another story often our greatest opportunities will come from our most difficult seasons and you and i can choose to think about wow this is really as bad as it's been this is really as difficult as it's been and i can just stop there or i can pray lord but you can use this. Please open a door for me in my chains. Open a door for me of opportunity somehow in in the midst of all of this. Verse 25, as he reasoned about righteousness, (laughs) I love this, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. So he's not intimidated by his audience Some people say one of the most important things to do when you're speaking is audience analysis. 
And they would say, well, as you analyze your audience, you know, you don't want to offend your audience or whatever. Paul had done his audience analysis, and so he knew exactly the things that he needed to talk about. To a couple hungry uh, political animals, politicos we would say today, lacking any sense of righteousness, lacking any sense of self-control, he preached about those things and judgment to come. He preached about how those things are wrong and how there's going to be accountability, not before men, but before God. That's what people need to fear, not some sort of social, legal uh, accountability in this life, but judgment to come. And Felix was afraid and answered, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. So that was his standard uh, thing. He, ju- he just, uh, I'll ignore this. And he just eventually could forget about things and not deal with them until he could not forget about things any longer in eternity and has to deal, about, deal with them. And so he just puts off making a decision for a more convenient time. In relationship to the Apostle Paul, that time never came. Verse 26, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. Isn't that interesting? This guy wanted a bribe. He's the governor of this region, a wealthy Roman official, and he wanted a bribe. Wow, greed. And verse 27, it says, After two years, Portius Festus, Man, that is a great name. That's all I can say. You know, Portius Festus. Uh, How could he not be a governor, Uh, at least in that time? He succeeded Felix, which is also a great name. But all I can ever think of with Felix is, remember that show Felix the Cat? Anytime I hear the name Felix, all I can remember is the cartoon Felix the Cat when I was a kid. But anyway, Portius Festus. Also, he wanted to do the Jews a favor. He left Paul bound. It's now about 58 AD, in case you're keeping track uh, of time. And Paul was in that situation for two years. You say, well, how long did this last? At this point, he's been in that situation for about two years. And as far as we can tell, no one was saved. But that doesn't diminish his faithful work and, and the fruitfulness of his work. Because it's not always about how many people accept Christ. Um, In fact, it's more so about our faithfulness to what God calls us to do. How did it work out for Felix and Drusilla? Well, Felix ended his his career under a cloud in Rome due to his methods of ruling. Drusilla and her son Agrippa, uh, they did not fare so well. Josephus tells us that they were killed in Pompeii uh, when Mount Vesuvius uh, erupted. So it's interesting These people hear the gospel from the Apostle Paul. We'll hear you again another time. Until a day came when it ended suddenly and there wasn't going to be uh, another time and the window of opportunity closed uh, on their ability to hear and to respond to the gospel. So back to Paul. He was in a less than ideal situation. A situation that would have made most people uh, entirely despondent. Some... So much so that they probably wouldn't have been able to function in any effective way um, due to their incarceration and their situation. Not Paul. 
He was no longer free. He was facing constant and strong accusations, false accusations. However, he allowed the Lord to use him and to use his confinement and those accusations to create an opportunity to share the gospel And this wouldn't be the last time. And this wouldn't be the highest level that God would take him to in terms of who he would preach the gospel to. Some of our greatest opportunities come from our most uh, unfavorable situations. From the least ideal of circumstances. And we can't worry about ourselves. We can't worry about preserving ourselves or even the results of our preaching. We just have to be bold and faithful. Let's pray. Thank you so much, Lord, for your word. We pray for exactly that. That you would help us by your spirit to not fear, but to sanctify you in our hearts. To be holy and then to walk in boldness and faithfulness regardless of what that means for our own personal circumstances. I pray that you would use every person here. I pray, Father, for a fresh empowering of your spirit. I pray for wisdom. Lord, you tell us if we lack wisdom to ask of you and you will give to all liberally without reproach. Lord, we ask. Give your people wisdom. And Lord, we pray that you'd use us. And while we know that the results are not the end, we do care and we do long to see every person saved and conformed into the image of your son. And so we pray for fruit. We pray for revival in our day in our midst, in our churches, in our towns, in our nation, in the world. As our heads are bowed here this morning, if you've come in, you've heard God's word preached, and God has softened your heart. In fact, you may even feel this sense of that God is pulling. He's drawing you. You're not wrong. If you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ and God is ministering to you saying, come, come. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. Come out of that world that you're in. You realize you need God. You're a sinner. Your sin is killing you. It's separated you from God. It's destroying you. And you know that the only one who can set you free is Jesus Christ because he died on a cross for your sins. And you don't want any part of judgment to come. Well, you don't have to because the blood of Jesus Christ can wash you from each and every sin. And you can be reconciled to God, but you need to repent. And you need to surrender your life to him. And I'd like to pray with you this morning. I'd like to pray with you right now. If you haven't given your life to Christ, I would like to pray with you right now to do that, just that.
You can raise your hand where you're sitting. We'll pray together. God is speaking to you. Don't, don't put him off. Don't say another time later when it's more convenient. Today is the day of salvation. The Bible says, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. I'll give you a moment. If there's anyone here, you take this opportunity now. Ah, Lord, we thank you. We love you. Thank you for your church. Thank you for your people. May you just strengthen them. May you shower them with your love. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.